welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland, and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder, and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. So joining us today again, we have Les Gordon, who's going to kind of dive into some of the practical considerations of the primary survey in special circumstances, so really getting into the nitty gritty. Les, thanks very much for coming on and joining us again. Let's talk about cold folk, because I know you have a, a particular interest in the management of hypothermia. What do we need to do and what do we need to think about for primary survey in, in the cold patient? That's a very good question because this is the perfect example where just every aspect of the primary survey is affected. From the start, if you're talking about danger, you check for response. There may be minimal signs of life, so they won't respond to you. Looking at airway, obviously manage the airway as normal, and their airway may actually be quite clear. But what I would say to people is don't rush to pass a superglottic airway or if you're qualified intubate, if the airway is maintained, even if the respiratory rate is very low. Because severely hypothermic patients, and I'm talking about a core body temperature of 28 degrees or below, only need to breathe slowly. So that's normal for them. Don't forget in severe hypothermia is extreme physiology and the rules are different. So, you know, you don't have the same worries as you would in a normothermic person. Historically, there have been some concerns about vagal stimulation with putting things like eye gels into airways that are profoundly cold. Have you come across any concerns around this? No, I haven't at all. You're right. I mean, there is a slight altering of the shape of the eye gel in terms of temperature in relation. Somebody actually did a study on that, which I can dig out. But essentially, the amount of change with temperature is, is small. If they're really cold, it might be slightly stiffer, but it shouldn't make a difference in terms of getting a reasonable airway if you needed to ventilate them through it. And moving on to look at B? B, I would give oxygen. If you end up ventilating them, in other words, you put an eye gel in, or as I say, if you're able to intubate and you've intubated them, don't hyperventilate under any circumstances because it's easy to do. They really don't produce much CO2 and they don't need the same level of minute ventilation that a normothermic person would need. So the danger is hyperventilation, as you know, reduces brain blood flow. It does that in a normal person, and it will probably do that in a hypothermic person. So if you then hyperventilate them further, then the, the blood flow to the brain is already reduced. It's going to potentially get even lower. If we go on then through the primary survey, looking at C, if there are signs of life, in other words, they haven't had an arrest, then handle very carefully to avoid precipitating an arrest. And if they do arrest, just remember the European Resuscitation Council guidelines, which have been updated and published just last month, but essentially maximum of three shocks and don't worry about ALS drugs. But one thing I would say is do not, under any circumstances, terminate resuscitation on scene. Unless there's a danger to the rescue services, obviously that's different if you're in a mountain rescue team and you're in a remote location in which it would be dangerous for you, then that's different. But because it's one of the reversible causes, hypothermia, you mustn't terminate resuscitation just because they don't appear to be responding. And I've come across a couple of cases in the last few months where this has happened, sadly, and people have potentially died that maybe wouldn't have done. One was on a mountain where the person initially responded, the casualty initially responded and had 
signs of life and then arrested and it was called after 20 minutes. And another one, the patient had refractory VF and was taken into hospital. And there they called it because it was refractory VF but and didn't try and rewarm. So those things shouldn't happen really in this day and age. If you do happen to have access to mechanical CPR, then use it. In terms of D, primary survey and severe hypothermia, check capillary sugar because hypoglycemia can contribute a little bit to the clinical picture and people will not rewarm anyway if they're very hypoglycemic. And E would obviously be to insulate and if you've got access to external heat, then use it. Diving back to sugars, one of the things that has been mulled backwards and forwards is whether your capillary sugar is a true reflection of your core sugar levels because we know that in hypoperfused states, capillary sugar levels can drop beyond your venous levels. Is there any value in taking a bit of blood off the back of a cannula and trying to get a bit more of a central figure? It is absolutely right. If you can get a cannula in, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, that would be a very useful thing because you're dead right. Severe hypothermia is the ultimate in hypoperfusion, I suppose, other than a cardiac arrest before you start resuscitation. So you're right. I think that's an excellent idea and very well worth doing. Okay, let's kind of look at, at management of airways in some of the trickier environments. I guess the kind of fundamental principles remain fairly similar in that we want a clear airway that is ideally being physiologically protected. Yes, all of our airways normally are clear, and that's where it should be. As soon as they start to become obstruct, then you've got a potential problem. And so how you keep it clear depends on many factors, and it'll include the physical situation you're in, what kit you've got available, the nature of the patient's illness or injury, your individual skills. So there are a lot of factors involved, and therefore you should have a number of skills at your fingertips Airway devices, we all talk about those, but actually that's just one method of managing the airway. The most simple way is with your hands. And if the C-spine is an issue, use jaw thrust. If you do use jaw thrust, make sure, I've seen people do this, trying to get better jaw thrust by resting their thumbs on the cheeks of the patient and pulling the jaw up. And while that works, if the face is intact, if you do that to somebody with facial injuries, you can actually push the maxilla in and make the airway obstruction worse. So if you do do jaw thrust, get used to doing it just from behind the angle of the mandible. But obviously, if you can move the head as well and neck because you're not worried about C-spine, then head, tilt, chin, lift do work. And that was something interesting that Peter Safar looked at and published a paper in the Journal of Physiology in the mid-50s where he put people in all sorts of different positions, unconscious people, and then did x-rays of them to look at their airways and so see whether they were obstructed or not. And he worked out that head, tilt, chin lift was a good way of clearing the airway. Fantastic. He's uh, definitely done some fairly rogue research, but hugely important. <laughs> yeah, indeed, you're right. In terms of, of trying to ventilate patients, there's always a little bit of debate about how we intervene practically. Any yeah. thoughts about how we can support ventilation, I guess is the terminology. Okay, for people that are not breathing adequately, then you do need to support ventilation. And although intubation, everybody thinks that's the gold standard and real men only intubate type of thing, that's not the case because it's fraught with problems and there are many studies many studies that actually show that outcomes are not superior with intubation over using a supraglottic airway such as an eye gel in particularly in a pre-hospital situation there are several reasons for this one is because of the nature of the indication for airway support it's acute they're really sick they can have serious disturbance of anatomy the 
people who tend to do it in the pre-hospital situation are usually not professional intubators, if you like, in other words, anaesthetists or experienced emergency medicine doctors. So they don't do a lot of intubations. So the occasional intubator who can't maintain their skills does have a much higher failure rate. If you then add to that that you're doing it on the ground or possibly with the patient slightly on one side or something because of the position they're in, it becomes really difficult. So it's much better to use simple methods to keep a clear airway and to ventilate. So clearly, if you want to uh, clear the airway, nasopharyngeal airway, you can put those in. Don't forget, if the patient's lying supine, when you're putting a nasopharyngeal in, consider that it's the direction of travel is along the floor of the nose, which is like as if you were nailing them to the ground. If they're lying on their back, face up, then it's vertically downwards. It's not upwards towards the eyes or the bridge of the nose. Even if they could have a base of skull fracture, if you use the correct direction, then it's safe. But never force a nasopharyngeal in against resistance. If people have got two nostrils, so try the other nostril. Some people just have blocked noses and they're mouth breathers, so you can't get one in. And if you push it, you'll just cause a lot of trauma. You'll cause a lot of bleeding, which will make the airway worse. But if you can get nasopharyngeals in, they're well tolerated and they're actually very good. Oropharyngeals, obviously, okay. And then after that, go for an eye gel or whatever supraglottic airway you like to use. The eye gels have become very popular because the eye gel, the resuscitation version, if you like, which is, comes with a, a band that goes around the back of the head, holds it nicely in place. And you can ventilate through that. It fits nicely to a, a bag valve arrangement. So it's very effective. One of the things that I've stolen shamelessly from the physiotherapists in hospital is the idea of nasopharyngeal suctioning. And that is something that's revolutionized those difficult, semi-conscious, semi-airway protected patients who are a bit bubbly and equally in trauma as well. If you can get an NP down, it, it makes a world of difference being able to clear that hyperpharynx reasonably effectively without having the gag reflex to work around. It is. You're absolutely right. The problem with oropharyngeals is, first of all, they're not naturally stable in the mouth, and they'll tend to either fall to one side or come forwards. And of course, if they're not over the back of the tongue, they won't keep the airway clear. They also are much more stimulating. Most people who are not unconscious will react to you when you put a nasopharyngeal in, but very quickly they'll tolerate it. And I see this sometimes with patients having operations, say, under spinal anesthetic, but they want sedation. So they're lying on their back, say, having a knee replacement. And as soon as you give them sedation, they start snoring, which is an obstructed airway. So you put a nasopharyngeal in and they initially will screw up their face a little bit and then they're fine. Of course, the airway is then clear. The issue you've got with nasopharyngeals is make sure you choose the right size. And on it's a CT study, but it was a good study because initially they used to say if the nasopharyngeal is the size of the patient's little finger, that's the size. But that's not so. This study showed that on balance, for most women, it's a size six. For most men, it's a size seven. For big men, it might be a little bit bigger. You know, So if you get somebody that's six foot six, for example, then they're going to need longer. But a six in terms of diameter will go down to a child who's age six. Because if I was going to intubate a child, what I always remember is six is six. So a six-year-old will take a six-millimeter tube, and that will also go through their nose. The issue then is the length from the nostril to the tragus of the ear, and that's the length, and that will give you an idea whether that it's long enough. So it's not just a diameter issue, it's a length issue for nasopharyngeal airways.
Okay, so if we've worked through our airway ladder and we get to a point at which we're going to need to make a sort of significant intervention, by which I mean a, a supraglottic or potentially, if you're in that kind of a formed team thinking about intubation, how can we optimise our chances of success? Basically, complicated is not better. So always keep it simple. Use manual before devices. Sometimes gravity can help keep an airway clear. And if you can, use that, and that's great too. Don't forget to know your limitations and the limitations of the device and do your the basic things really well because that will maximize your chances of success. A few things that are particularly important for pre-hospital airways are expect that they're going to be more difficult than they would be in an emergency department, for example, because you've got issues around lighting, weather, the emotional situation, the patient who's critically ill, so you're under pressure and you may feel under time pressure as well, maybe relative practitioner inexperienced. Because there's so much different pathology that can affect the airway, it becomes difficult to actually make one set of rules and you sometimes have to feel your way as you go. And obviously you could be in a difficult physical situation. Some people, of course, can have just awkward anatomy because that's the shape of their face and that's just the way things are so get to know a small range of equipment really well so you're really comfortable with that and you know exactly how to use it you know how to put it in if it's not working properly if it's in the wrong position you'll know have clear indications before inserting a device and the bigger it is if you like well the more invasive it is the more that is the case because the more invasive something is the more likelihood complications arising Get yourself in a comfortable position and get a patient in a good position if you can, because if you're trying to do things at an awkward angle, you may actually put it in in an awkward angle or you may not get it in smoothly. Do that. If A doesn't work, have a plan B and possibly a plan C. In extreme situations, plan C may actually be front and neck access, but it depends. But have a series of, if this doesn't work, I'll do this. And if that doesn't work, I'll do that. And let people who are helping you know what your plans are because they can support you. That shared mental modelling is one of the things that from memory came out of the Bromwich case in terms of making sure that everybody knew what plan A, plan B and plan C were. And then if you get task focused, you've hopefully got somebody around you who can reassess your progress and, and potentially push you into plan B. Absolutely right. I mean, when I do my team brief in the morning with my operating department practitioner, who's going to be assisting me, I always say, right, this is a situation. And if it looks like a difficult airway, as we had one the other day, I say, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing. This is plan A. If that doesn't work, the likelihood reasons are this and this or whatever. I'm going to go to this. And if that doesn't work, this. And if that doesn't work. So I actually had D. I had four for this patient we were doing the other day. And we got all the equipment laid out, if you like, in the order that I could need it. So we didn't have to go hunting around for stuff. We were both singing from the same sheet. And that was brilliant because if we needed to move from one to the other, we could do it almost seamlessly. You know, I would call it at a certain point and we'd move on to the next stage. That feng shui of, of having your kit laid out and plan A, plan B, plan C visually laid out as well. Is great because I, I don't know about most folk, but my front and neck access kit is often buried in a bit of a dark corner because thankfully it doesn't get used very often. But if you're going to need to make an intervention, then it would be pretty key to have it to hand. I mean, there are occasions you want access of some sort electively, but that's usually in operations in the hospital. Out there, it's usually, oh God, I'm going to have to go in through the front of the neck type of situation. So you're right. If you can have less clutter, 
because in a stressful situation, what you'll find is obviously, and we all know this, you're, you're looking all over the place. And you may miss the thing that's right under your nose because you're just so distressed with the whole thing. So you're right, laying things out and putting stuff that you won't need to one side is a great thing. And when I teach on the team course, the training and emergency airway management course, and we're doing uh, practicing rapid sequence induction, I say, right, put stuff out. So these are the order of the drugs you're going to use in the order you're going to use them. This is your first syringoscope that you're going to use a bougie, then that's there, and the tube that you're going to use first. And that's there. And you just, you've got about five things in a line. And that, a level behind that is the backup stuff in the order you could use those. So everybody knows where everything is. You could just look at it and it's like reading the piece of music in a sense. You know exactly what's going to happen. What about managing airways in patients who have had significant trauma and were a bit twitchy about their C-spine? Because this is always one of those kind of great balancing acts between optimising the airway and not causing further harm. Absolutely right. Almost all the evidence is that they've already done the injury and they've got it. And unless you're really, really heavy-handed, you're not actually going to make things significantly worse. But what you will do is if you don't treat an airway problem, because airway takes precedence over C-spine protection, and it's absolutely essential if they've got, for example, and they usually do have, a concomitant traumatic brain injury. It's unusual unless there's a direct impact just to the neck. In the typical sort of cases we get called to on the mountains, and you'll get called to at the roadside, for example, or RTC, there's going to be concomitant traumatic brain injury. So you're not only thinking about the spine, but you're thinking about the brain. So airway does take precedence. You do your best not to do gross C-spine movement, but regardless of what motion restriction techniques are used, it's almost impossible. All the studies have shown there's always some degree of movement during placement of a device in the airway, a bigger device than a norepharyngeal amine or a nasopharyngeal. So in other words, a supraglottic or intubation. So you just got to try and do those in as smooth a way as possible, because that's the best you can do. What you shouldn't do if you get to a casualty and somebody's already put a collar on them, is you've got to take that collar off before you start trying to manage the airway, because you cannot put devices into the mouth and into the trachea with a collar in place. It just holds the head and neck in a wrong position and you can't open the mouth properly. So what I would say is choose the technique that's best in your hands. If there's several of you there, choose the person that's best qualified to perform the procedure. I know everybody needs to get experience, but you can get experience sometimes on less fraught cases. And then you become the expert everybody else turns to. So just kind of optimizing that first attempt success so that you get it right with one movement rather than having a suboptimal attempt and needing to have then multiple interventions. It's always best with everything, but particularly with airways, because what happens with airways is if you're starting fiddling and you can't get it in properly, you've got to come out again and then go in again. There's more trauma. And of course, trauma equals bleeding and bleeding is bad news in an airway. What about folk with the horrible smashed up mid-face and kind of max-fax trauma? Because they're a nightmare to try and look after their airway or even just clear their airway. Oh, absolutely. I remember one, he sticks in my mind, this chap, because Puffel had been assaulted, smashed in the face. Then they'd grabbed hold of him so that actually fractured both sides of his mandible. And the only way he could keep his airway clear was to actually sit up and sit forward. So the whole of his face just fell forward with gravity. And this is what I've had in mind before when I was mentioning about using gravity to help keep an airway clear. Getting to vertically was starting to struggle. If you try to lay him back, he just completely obstructed because, because both the of his mandible had, had been fractured, 
There was nothing to support the floor of his mouth. Muscles weren't enough. There was no bony structure. So it just fell back and he obstructed. So you may have to use gravity in that way. Because of the amount of blood that there often is with facial trauma, the loss of a normal anatomy, it can be really difficult to work out where you are sometimes. So you can expect that they're going to have airway obstruction is probably the rule in those cases. They may have other injuries as well. And if their facial tissues have lost their structure, then it may not be enough resilience to support the supraglottic airway as well. And that can be an issue. I mean, one of the worst I've seen is sort of like half a face was missing. And you could actually, if you just pulled a flap of skin there, you didn't need a laryngoscope. You could just see the epiglottis and the cords because of the extent of the damage. But the problem with that is you put a supraglottic airway and it's not going to stay in place. So in those sort of situations, surgical cricothyroidotomy is probably going to be needed. I mean, what I read about recently, which was published in Air Medical Journal, and that was of a patient who tried to commit suicide with a crossbow. He put the bolt under his chin and shot it and came out through his head. So he, he, he had another go, and this time it got stuck, and it pinioned his mouth half open and half closed. He just couldn't move it. So if they opened his mouth, it was what they call a malampati four view. In other words, all you could see was tongue. Really difficult, really difficult to manage. So you never know what you're going to find out there. And he was an example of somebody that you would potentially, if there's obstructing, need to use front of neck access. You kind of mentioned the neck there. The neck trauma scares me. The surgical trainee scares me from a pre-hospital point of view because there's a lot going on there. And traumatic neck injury is horrendous because you've got blood and air and fluids all kicking around in the same space. It's awful. Not that I'm trying to frighten anybody, but it is. If you've got penetrating neck injury, there are a lot of issues. I mean, something going through your neck, if you think about all the, the structures that are there, big arteries, you know, the size of your index finger, big veins, the same again, airway, nerves, there's a monster amount of stuff up there. So there's a lot of capacity for bleeding. Bleeding trapped in the tissues will push the tissues over. And we see that sometimes in a post-op situation. If somebody's had a thyroidectomy and it bleeds and there's pressure, you can find the trachea is getting compressed by the bleeding. So that can be an issue. If the level of the injury is such between the larynx and the trachea, that is a very, very dangerous situation because what can happen if you're not careful and you can't really be careful in a pre-hospital situation, careful enough, I mean, because in these situations is you can actually separate the larynx from the trachea, you know, they'll probably die if that happens. If you were going to intubate them, you'd ideally want to do it with a fiber optic scope so you could look through and get through the trachea, through the cords and down into the trachea so you've got a continuous thing. So if the two separate, at least you've got a, a line in would be one potential way of doing it. If you put a supraglottic airway into those because of where it fits around the larynx, you again could potentially move the larynx and separate it from the trachea. So if you've got to have to put something in one of those people, well, think twice or three times before you do in that situation. Clearly, the choice between the definitive airway and is going to depend on the expertise, what equipment you've got, how long till you get to hospital. But sometimes, tempting though it is, what I would say is a simple rule, while they're breathing, they're alive. And my experience is that sometimes you've got to accept half an airway, if you like, because it's better than none. In a short term, I'm not talking about long term, but in a short term situation, sometimes if they're breathing and they're getting reasonable gas exchange, the SATs are okay. Sometimes the best thing is actually to do nothing at the roadside. 
treat with diesel and, and maybe just have your Crite kit handy in an accessible pocket? Yes, bearing in mind, though, that if it was a laryngo tracheal injury, the anatomy may be distorted. And as you go in, it's going to be difficult, potentially. You're almost damned if you do and damned if you don't in those situations. My temptation would be to say, if because of what we're talking about, laryngotracheal, what I would say is if I could do nothing, I would do it and get them to hospital ASAP and pre-alert the hospital of what's coming and pick your hospital for somewhere that can manage this. And a cardiac centre is, is actually, a cardiothoracic centre is ideal in the sense that if necessary, they can put them on ECMO or bypass rather, potentially femoral bypass because that mean, takes the worry out of having to breathe, and then you can fiddle. But you would discuss that with the hospital. If you needed an intervention, careful, maybe a slightly smaller supraglottic may be acceptable, so you're not wiggling the tissues around too much, and don't wiggle the device once it's in. But if you could manage with lesser things, so if you could manage just with basic techniques, an oropharyngeal or a nasopharyngeal, I'd stick with that if there's something where it could be dangerous in that laryngotracheal area. Speaking of danger in that area, what about burns? They're always a, a bit of a worry too. Burns, I've seen some, some of the most frightening ones I've seen the burns. I don't want to worry people, but I used to work in the Mersey Regional Burns Unit, so we saw a trickle of them coming. I mean, there were a lot of them came through, but I was involved in a few of them. And what is amazing is the speed of, with inhalational burns is this, the speed at which airway obstruction can occur due to edema. You're not talking about big tissue areas. If you think about it, if you think about the size of the average epiglottis and the gap between the cords, it's not very big and it doesn't leave a lot of edema for you to start to get serious obstruction. So upper airway burns, usually inhalational really from uh, in a house fire or whatever, factory fire, it's a time critical situation. And one case in particular stands in my mind, you know, you're looking in and it's almost closing in front of you. Those people will get tired very quickly because they've suddenly got to work really hard to get air in and out. And although they ideally would need to be intubated, if you can't do that and you can't do it reliably and you don't really want to anaesthetize them to do that because that will affect their breathing, then potentially, again, could be front and neck access because what you're doing is then going below the level of the edema. And if, even if the neck is burned, you can still go through there because the anatomy underneath is the same to ensure a good airway. If they've got it's like a swollen epiglottis, swollen cords, even if you put an eye gel in, and it will be a difficult fit because it'll be the back of the throat will be swollen too. Bag valve mask ventilation is very difficult because you're actually trying to squeeze air through a tiny crack. And it literally is just a tiny crack. You almost can't get a bougie through it sometimes. Right in saying pretty aggressive with the oxygen for, for Burns patients, not least because SATs are fairly unreliable. Yeah, and absolutely they're unreliable because they're going to have high carboxy hemoglobin levels. So, you know, they may look pink, but their blood won't be. And the treatment of carbon monoxide poisoning obviously is high inspired oxygen levels. So absolutely high flow. And touching on the airway with head injuries... Clear airway is, if you want one rule of thumb, which was in a mountain rescue book that I once read, but it was very good. It said traumatic brain injury, and the rule of thumb for airway is airway, airway, airway. That's the rule of thumb. In other words, obstruction is really bad for the injured brain. They get hypoxic, they get a high CO2, which is bad for the brain circulation. They work harder at their breathing, and that raises intracranial pressure. They also are a group that have a higher risk of regurgitation and aspiration. And of course, they may have facial and C-spine issues. So they're difficult cases. 
but they need to have a clear airway and you need to do everything you can to keep the airway clear in the ways that we've discussed. If they are really, really well down the track, they may not be breathing very well, in which case, yeah, put in your eye gel and ventilate them at a normal rate and a normal tidal volume. Don't hyperventilate unless there are really good indications that the intracranial pressure has gone really high, which may be that a pupil may blow or they may get a Cushing's response, which is an increasing BP and a falling heart rate. Right in saying that that hyperventilation might potentially buy you five minutes whilst something else happens, but actually it's not really a strategy in terms of the management of ICP in any definitive sense. No, it isn't. It'll buy you some time, but normally more will need to be done. And for example, in the hospital, they they may use mannitol and so on. But the idea is that you reduce brain blood flow. The problem with hyperventilation, you see, is it affects the injured and the uninjured parts of the brain. So it's, it's actually a sort of a bit of a blunderbuss treatment because it might be fine for some areas. But traditionally, your hyperventilation, what it does is reduces blood flow, brain blood flow, but that's fine maybe to an area that can tolerate it, but it won't be so to an area that's injured. So that's why it's really, really by default, you don't do that unless there's a very, very good reason. And that's usually under the guidance of a neurosurgeon. Now we've looked at airway and ventilation is all part of the same pathway and, and touched on quite a few B aspects. I wanted to push you on towards circulation and look at some of the more complex areas of circulation briefly. Okay, well, there's a few that spring to mind, really. One is, we were talking about before, hypothermia and reversible causes of cardiac arrest. And of course, another H is hyperkalemia. And that could happen in a renal failure patient that's missed their dialysis appointment for some reason or something like that. That is time critical because what happens is the potassium goes up, you see the ECG change, the complexes get wider, it usually gets slower. And if you pick it up early enough, you can actually stop them arresting. The treatment is dextrose and insulin and calcium chloride, and sometimes you would give bicarb as well, which encourages potassium to go back into the cells. The problem is that not all of those are available pre-hospitally. I mean, it may be that basics doctors do carry that level of stuff, in which case that's fine, but I know that many ambulance crews do not, and they've only got dextrose out of those four. So if even if you have got them, if the patient arrests and you think it's a hyperkalemic arrest, Pre-alert the hospital because they need to know that. But secondly, expect to do prolonged CPR. Don't call it again out there because it is a reversible cause of cardiac arrest. And this is one of those areas where it's hugely frustrating not being able to do a roadside blood test or a BM style test where we could assess potassium levels. And I think there was some work at one stage to try and look at developing that, but I've yet to see anything hit the market. You're right. There are point of care monitors for that, but if you don't carry one and they're not cheap, I mean, it's a shame in a way because you're dead right. It would be very useful in a high risk type of case. You just you know prick the finger type of thing, get a result and you know where you are. You've got a diagnosis because it's also useful in that situation because we have four H's and four T's to go through. But if you can eliminate some because you've done a test like that, if you think, well, could this be hyperkalemia? And then you get potassium back is 4.3. We say, okay, well, whatever the cause of the arrest is, it's not that. Yeah, it would be nice to cross it out. Now, we talked earlier on about catastrophic hemorrhage, and there are quite a lot of bleeds that are not catastrophic in the sense that they're not major arterial bleeds, but are, are still cause significant ongoing loss. And you know, classically, these are kind of picked up in that second C. What sort of things can we think about doing with managing those? 
with anything that's bleeding, direct pressure is always a great way to start. Usually with a load of pads in your hand and gloves on, obviously, and that may do the trick, but it depends on the extent of it and what's bleeding. If it's a single vessel, for example, then that's actually worked quite well. But if it's a more diffuse bleeding, if there's been tissue loss and you've got a bit of a cavity there, then it's hard. You can't press directly on that. So what you've got to do is try and pack it. You can pack, obviously, if you've got access to hemostatic agents such as Celox, but there are others as well. It's just that's one we use. And that can help a lot. And clearly, indirect pressure is also described. It's tricky that the idea is that what you do is you press on the artery feeding the area to reduce blood flow to the area. And clearly, that's what surgeons do when they put a tourniquet on an arm prior to operating on it or a leg. And we know that indirect pressure will cut off blood supply to arms because if we put a BP cuff on somebody and the, the pulse oximeter is on the same hand, then suddenly the pulse oximeter stops reading. So we know that works. And in a sense, that's fine. But its problem is maintaining it. So the only way you could maintain it on a limb is with a tourniquet. There are all sorts of pros and cons about using tourniquets because surgical tourniquets are actually like big blood pressure cuffs and they're relatively safe. Pre-hospital tourniquets are more like pieces of string in a sense. So there's a little bit more of an issue with those. But nevertheless, if the alternative was exsanguinate or tourniquet, tourniquet every time wins. And of course, the military carry those and some of them will carry one on each each limb ready to activate if they need to because they get caught in a, in a blast of some sort. So in summary, direct pressure over the vessel, over the area, indirect pressure maybe by occluding a vessel, a feeding vessel, or packing, tourniquet possibly, and if it's a cavity that's bleeding with a lot of diffuse bleeding, hemostatic agents. Fantastic. And I guess building into there is going to be things like TXA that are adjuncts to care that kind of come alongside. They do, but they don't stop bleeding. No, you're dead right. With major trauma, you give TXA. But, you know, if you give it, it's not like turning off a tap with that, is it? <laughs> so, unfortunately, it'd be nice. <laughs> it'd be nice so, if it was. Yes, you're right. We do do that. But to stop clot disruption, it's not going to stop active bleeding. And I guess the last group I want to touch on within C, not least because we're going to talk about sepsis in some detail on another podcast. What about those traumatically injured patients who present with that odd picture of being profoundly hypotensive, but not really mounting much of a tachycardia? Yeah. I mean, the one thing that springs to mind in that situation is if they've got a, a high spinal cord injury. And the likelihood of that will be, first of all, you'll be on your alert because of the history. So if they've had a, a major fall on the mountain area, if it's RCC, you know, thrown off a motorbike at any speed, really, you've gone through the window of a vehicle, then that's always a possibility. Anyway, and then if you then look at them and they've already got a fractured leg, they may be conscious and you get to them and their pulse is only 60 or 55. And it's, well, why? You know, he's got fractured there. He's alert and he's upset and his pulse is only 60. That's not right. And then you do the BP and that could be the big one to worry about would be spinal injury. And obviously, if they are conscious, you get them, ask them to move their limbs and that will confirm it. If they do have a high spinal injury, then the big issue in terms of primary survey is they'll need vascular support with fluids, possibly vasopressors, because you want to keep some sort of perfusion going to the injured cord. And the hypotension is bad as it is for the injured brain. And also with these people, they can't vasoconstrict because they've lost the ability if you get a high spinal injury and therefore heat loss can be very rapid and considerable. 
So make sure they're well insulated. If you've got heat pads, use those. Fantastic. I'm glad you mentioned heat loss because it's something I do want to touch on again. And we've kind of picked up on traumatic brain injury under A and touched on it in a few other areas. So we'll, we'll kind of skip past the disability bit and just, I feel a bit bad for E because it's often the bit that everyone skims through and in scenarios we generally kind of go, yep, fine, okay, you know, it's all fine, move on. But in practice, particularly in rural Scotland when it's howling with rain, that exposure and environmental piece is, is phenomenally difficult. It is. Uh, you've got to expose them to look at them, you know, to assess. For example, if they could have major chest injuries, you can't examine that through their clothes. You've got to expose. But as soon as you do, they will have been cooling because they'll have been lying still and they're out there. And the air temperature in this country is always well below body temperature. So if you're outside and you're not really seriously insulated or you've got external heat applied, you're going to cool off. So they'll do that anyway. As soon as you open them up to check their chest, to put a BP cuff on, to examine the abdomen, they're going to cool off. And there's good published evidence now from a lot of studies that actually by the time emergency services get on scene, temperatures are already dropped one or two degrees before they've even done anything. So what I'd say is really expect that they're cold when you arrive and try to minimize what you do that'll make them cool further. And as soon as you've done what you need to do by which they may cool, you know, cover them up again. So once you've checked the chest and if you're happy with the chest, for example, then get it covered up again. If you carry heat pads, put those on because that will deliver a little bit of heat and just slow cooling. They will get to the hospital cold, but they could be less cold if you pay attention to detail. Fantastic. You know, hypothermia is one of the, the triad of death and it really is an issue. So much so that although traditionally we describe hypothermia as being 35 in the presence of major trauma, some authorities would consider it's below 36. So you're hypothermic very quickly, if you like, from by definition. And the reason for that is because measurable effects on clotting and so on start to occur in trauma patients below that temperature. And certainly subjective, that fits with my experience in the operating theatre in that folk get incredibly oozy the minute they start to lose any significant amount of temperature. Oh, they do. Absolutely right. Liz, that's been a fantastic run through both the history and also the, the real complexities and nitty gritty of that primary survey. I'm going to get you to give us the three take-home messages for folk going out on the road, answering the phone to a job in the next couple of days. What would you suggest that they take away with them? Okay, the most important thing I would say is when you're doing primary survey, don't allow yourself to get sidetracked into non-urgent issues. Your remit is to find if there are any life threats and deal with them. Can't treat them necessarily, but you can stabilize them or manage them in some sort of way so the patient can get to hospital. So don't, for example, get distracted with the broken leg, with the patient complaining that they've got a bad knee, but actually they've come off a bike at speed and you haven't checked the chest. And turns out they've fractured some ribs, but they haven't noticed or they're developing a pneumothorax. That takes precedent over a broken leg. Secondly, I think I would say with primary survey, you should repeat everything once. And you may need to do some of them several times in unstable patients because the fix that you do initially may not be as good a fix 15 or 20 minutes down the line. And then the third thing I would say, because you're under mental pressure, emotional pressure when you're doing this, is it's worth practicing it a bit just to become slick with it and to remind yourself, this is key, this is key, this is key. 
this I need to do because don't forget, as I said to you right at the beginning, you can make a clinical assessment. You can do, you don't really need much equipment. You don't need technology to do a primary survey for the most part. I suppose the only thing would be if you thought, for example, D, they were un unconscious, you say, okay, well, two things you can't do with your fingers, your eyes and your ears are you can't measure their temperature and you can't do their blood sugar. So you could use technology then, but otherwise do all the technology afterwards. Fantastic. You know, that's been a great summary and really kind of dived into the nitty gritty of the primary survey and pulled out some really interesting learning points. There's only two other things I would add really. One is make sure you document everything as thoroughly as you possibly can. I know it's difficult out there in the rain, at night, etc., etc., because you're trying to get them sorted and then you've got to try and get them in an ambulance and get them away. But documentation is your friend because it's helpful for the receiving hospital because they're suddenly going to get landed with this person in all sorts of bits with bits of medical equipment in them and so on and so forth. It may be needed actually by the police and the coroner because if it turns out to be a fatality, they'll want to know what went on on scene. Was the person dead when you arrived or did they die? Subsequently, did they die? And I suppose in the event, it's in the unlikely event, but there's any medical legal follow-up, a good record made at the time is invaluable. And if you think that could be an issue, then as soon as you get home, make some records. And I know there are issues around confidentiality and so on, but if you have a, a patient record form that you're going to pass on and you think you could be asked again about this, take a photograph of it, you know, just keep it safe. I know there are issues people say with confidentiality and so on, but you're not going to put it on Facebook, I hope, but at least you've got it because the problem I find sometimes with these acute situations is that records written at scene get lost. And by the time you get to the having to go through the case and see what happened, the records have disappeared. The last thing I'll leave you the thought is this, you have to play the hand you've been dealt. You're in a pre-hospital situation, you've got limited resources, and it's sometimes not possible to deliver what you might call perfection. You can only do your best, but if you do your best, that's good enough. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.